Please listen carefully. Welcome back to the Utterly Moderate Podcast. Thanks for joining us. On today's show, we're being joined by Stephen Melnick, a professor of supply chain management in the Broad College of Business at Michigan State University. And Dr. Melnick is going to help us understand the ins and outs of a system that many of us gave little thought to, and most of us probably couldn't even name before the pandemic hit, and that is the supply chain. Before we get there, though, a couple of announcements. First, I am very pleased to announce that we have two newcomers at the Connors Forum. Madison Lockman and Allison Ritchie are coming on board to be production assistants for this podcast. Madison and Allison both have just stellar reputations across campus as really hard workers, super smart, really engaged, and just really good human beings. And I can actually attest to that. I've had them both in multiple classes. I have worked with them on independent research projects and I couldn't be prouder of them as people and prouder of them as students. So um, I'm really happy to have them on board and uh, helping me get this podcast on the air each week. And so uh, to Madison and to Allison, welcome to the team. I also want to mention that the Connors Forum now has a newsletter. If you go to connorsforum.org, you can check it out. And if you subscribe for free, and it just takes one quick, easy step to subscribe, all of our newsletter items and podcasts will arrive instantly in your email inbox once they're published. It's pretty awesome. So if you get a chance, go on over to connorsforum.org. Check it out. Uh, the first two items are by yours truly, but keep an eye out because there'll be posts from other Connors Forum affiliated scholars in the near future. And the last thing I wanted to share before we started the show is a big congratulations to NewsGuard. They're the high-quality news rating organization that we've mentioned frequently on this podcast. They just signed a deal with the American Federation of Teachers so that tens of millions of public school students in the U.S. will now have access to NewsGuard software, and they'll be much more confident in the credibility of the information they're reading on the web. So big congratulations to our friends over at NewsGuard. All right, and with that, let's get to the main topic for today's show, the supply chain. Joining us today from the Broad College of Business at Michigan State University is Professor of Supply Chain Management, Dr. Stephen Melnick. Thanks for joining us today, Professor. Thank you for having me. All right, so uh, much like epidemiology, nobody knew what the heck it was, and then the pandemic happened. Now everybody seems like they're an epidemiologist. Uh, supply chains are on everybody's tongue these days. So, But for those who are uninitiated, those who don't know what the heck we're talking about, uh, in, in the most general terms possible, what is a supply chain? Okay, that's a good question. And it's a good starting point because there's a lot of misconceptions. Supply chains are everything that you need to do from extraction to the consumer and then finally to disposal. So in it, you have the activities such as getting it out of the ground in China, because a lot of the rare earths come from China, processing them into components, moving them from places like Vietnam, Australia, China, Britain, Europe, to the United States, manufacturing, putting it on trains, trucks to other companies, and then it goes to a place like your local um, 
hobby store, your local whatever store that you have, or going to Amazon, and then it goes to you. And in today's environment, we've even extended it to look at take-back programs. What do we do when you're done with the program, with the product? Because we're now starting to find that people throw away a lot. And so what we're trying to do is to ensure that the right product at the right time comes to you in the right quality. All right. When the pandemic first hit as a supply chain expert, your response was? Understand why. Focus on corrective actions. Two of them. Understand why is to find out why was there a problem. Focus on corrective actions in the short term, which is things like picking up the most uh, reducing SKUs, SKUs, stock keeping units. So we would focus on fewer items and ensure that they were available. The third thing we would do, the third thing we focused on is changing the method of delivery so that it would be acceptable to the people who were involved in many cases who now couldn't go out and shop in person. Since then, we've added a fourth issue, which is avoiding uh, avoiding uh, people who take advantage of the system. And we'll, mm-hmm. That's a separate issue. So the issue is understand, standardize, reduce, adapt, move forward, and also keep the, the populace open, f- f- aware. When you see these pictures going around the internet of empty shelves at the grocery store, you think to yourself? Uh, we have a supply chain problem. We also have an issue where the company hasn't understood why it's been unable to fill those. And is it consumer behavior or is it supply problem? I'll give you an example. During the pandemic, we found at one point, baking yeast disappeared. Mm -hmm. That was almost impossible to predict. Why? Because it, you talk to the people at Walmart, they'll tell you the demand for baking yeast had increased by 438% in one year. Oh, my gosh. So, the answer is, understand what it is. It's a symptom. And symptoms, you have to understand why they occur before you attack them. This is what makes a supply chain person different from everyone else. Uh, the Suez Canal ship getting stuck, the Ever Given. Was that a good example for you to use in class? A uh, very good example for two reasons. Number one, it highlighted the fact that, you know, we've got to identify the critical links, the critical bottlenecks. The second thing, too, is it also talked about the fact that surely, and I didn't mean to call you Shirley, <laughs> that surely someone would have thought that this would have been a possibility. And so what it also highlighted was the fact that we hadn't used the appropriate tools. A company should be able to identify and anticipate potential pr- threats to the supply chain and have, have backup contingencies ready to go. And the third thing that I thought about was the response time. It took over a week. And did you realize in that week, it's not simply, here's the problem. When I looked at the Suez and the way we described it in class, it's not simply the week that was devastating. It's the fact that behind it were all of these ships that were backed up. Oh, I've seen the satellite pictures. It's so interesting. That's the issue. That is the ripple effect that's going to permeate through the entire supply chain. Mm -hmm. It's like you're looking at... When you look at the evergreen, you're seeing the tip of the iceberg, literally. 
I've I've I heard of Thanksgiving turkeys being uh, impacted by the supply chain. I just recently saw, as a a sweets lover myself, that Girl Scout cookies are going to be impacted. Uh, put on your Nostradamus hat here. I'm not going to hold you to sure. this. Um, but if you had to predict the next big thing that would be impacted by the supply chain in 2022, you would say? Oh, that's a good one. <laughs> I hadn't thought about that because right now we've got the chips. We've got photography that's been impacted. Uh we won't hold you to it. We won't bring you back on and say, ha you were wrong. <laughs> no, I, I would say it's, it's going to be, you know, some of the exercise equipment because uh, when I look at it, uh, it's coming from overseas and it's also going to be affected by, you know, the stuff that we do in our spare time. What the pandemic has made us aware of things we do in our spare time. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that's happened is our the, the stuff we do for exercise or leisure has been impacted greatly. And this is going to be toys. This is going to be photography equipment. This is going to be bicycles. This is going to be kayaks, you name it. When are we going to get back on track? When are we going to get back? To we're starting normal? to see it now. We're starting, to see, we're starting to see it. It's going to take time. Um, I would say that by the time we get to the third quarter of 2022, we'll see a lot of the situations go away. The problem is, okay, okay, remember, I'm a professor. We don't give you simple answers. <laughs> There's a two-parter. Cars, for example, we're, I'm saying that about third quarter 2022, the chip shortage should ease up. The problem is, I don't think the behaviors that we're currently seeing will change. Why is that? In 2021, the contribution margins, according to government data, has gone up by 30% to auto, to the people who sell cars, either dealers or manufacturers. And that's because for the first time, they didn't have to negotiate on price. It was availability. That's going to be difficult for many dealers to move away from. And so what I'm going to also tell you that's going to happen is the supply shortages may ease, but don't expect us to return to the same models that we saw. We're seeing now in the auto industry, Ford talking about direct sales. We're seeing car companies talk about only having a few products in the showroom. And then you order everything and it's delivered. Mm-hmm. So that instead of having their having the pressure of inventory on the parking lot, on the car lot to be sold, you're going to eliminate that in exchange for I'm going to get better margins and people, because the, uh, the concept people are now learning is people have gotten used to waiting for things like cars. And I fear that we may have seen the buying behaviors and the sales behaviors change because let's put it this way. It's profitable. Look at what's happened to used car prices. So you're at Michigan state and, um, has uh, has all this stuff, the pandemic and all this attention, has it been a boon to uh, your enrollment in your program? Uh, yes and no. Uh, yes, in the sense there's more attention. Yes, we're bringing people in. No, in the sense that uh, there's only so many faculty who can teach. Supply chain, we're limited bottleneck by faculty, and that's been an issue. And the other problem is uh, 
it's also created demand for the other branches of business, such as finance and strategy. Mm -hmm. And so it's made, it's highlighted the importance, but it's also exposed the fact that we have a lack of uh, capacity. The other thing it's done too is it's exposed us to a really interesting problem. I'm now starting to see that the skills I'm talking about to my class have changed in the last five years. Wow. Um, five years ago, it was process mapping. It was managing execution. Now it's managing at the edges. It's talking with other groups, man managing with accounting, finance, marketing. It's strategic supply chain. Uh, we had an we had a, a executive program we did with a client, Michigan State, and one of the things I asked them is. If I looked at my supply chain and looked at a scale from zero to 100, where 100% operations to 0% operations, 100% strategic, where were your current supply chain people? Almost 100% operations. Where do you want them? 75 operations to 50% operations, more strategic. So you've got, it's created a situation where, from my perspective, not only do we have a change in demand, but we almost have to change the skill set of the faculty teaching the students because mm -hmm. what's happened is industry is telling us they want more strategic, more integrative, more effective people who can deal with supply chain as a strategic asset, not as put the order in, get the order out. Is there a good example that you use in class, like, um, you know, from like start to finish, like here's how a toy soldier gets to the Christmas, you know, tree or something like that? Like, is there a good visualization of this? There are lots of good visualizations. Uh, in terms of what's going on, one of the best ones recently, a colleague of mine talked to me about, he ordered a toy giraffe for his daughter. The toy giraffe was placed through a um, local company, a local toy store. If from the toy store, the order went off to the distributor. From the distributor, it went to the manufacturer. Then the manufacturer placed the order with a with his suppliers in China. And that meant that different people had to build it, put it together. And this was not an ordinary off-the-shelf giraffe. This was about four feet tall. So it had some depth to it. Then what happened is it had to go, had to be manufactured, had to be brought in from, in, uh, I think it was uh, Guangzhou, had to be brought into Shanghai or one of the major shipping points where it had to wait until enough containers were put together for a ship and then it had to get into a shipping lane. Then it got onto a ship and ships take about 21 to 22 days, depending upon the weather, to cross. From there, it was off Long Beach, had to be waited to be offloaded, had to be waited to be inspected, cleared custom. Then when it was, once it was processed, it had to get on to a truck or a train for transport to a regional warehouse near my colleague. And from there, it went on a truck. And from there, it went to the toy store. And from there, it went to his daughter. Now, in the past, that would have taken maybe three, four weeks. With the pandemic, it took them a little bit longer. Now, in the distant past, though, it would have taken a lot longer, right? It did. 
And that's because in the distant past, we had, first of all, in the distant past, it was not as formally organized. Supply chains are really nowadays formally organized. There are formal relationships people have identified what each person does, with each person's responsibility. We've also done certain things. We've used technology. We communicate uh, via internet. It's no longer a letter. When I was growing up many years ago, uh, what comes to mind, uh, I grew up in Canada, and what comes to mind is an NFB, National Film Board, cartoon called The Sweater. And in The Sweater, the mother orders a sweater for her young son, and she writes her request on a piece of paper in her finest handwriting, drops it off in the post box, waits for it to be picked up, waits to be taken, waits to be interpreted, filled, etc. That's all done electronically. It's And information is now sent electronically. We've become, the supply chain has conditioned us to have visibility. Uh, you place an order with Amazon and they'll tell you whether it's been accepted, when it could be expected, things that we didn't have before. So, <clears throat> Whereas in the past, it would take weeks, and it was often a black box. Now, if you're a Prime member, it's days, and you know. Yeah, so you talked about the impact of the internet. You talked about the impact of communications technologies. Some other things, and again, I have, I'm a sociologist. I have no training whatsoever in this area, so I'll just throw this to you. But um, one other thing that I heard, which kind of shocked me because it sounded so low-tech, and it sounded so like, really, that's the big innovation – but I heard one of the big uh, changes in supply chains over the years was um, shipping containers. Is that true? Yeah. Well, don't forget. Okay. That's, you've had a lot of small changes that have come together. One of those changes was containerization. Containerization, the concept was introduced in the 1950s. Have you ever seen any movies of uh, unloading and loading of ships for World War II? I don't think so. Okay. If you have a chance, look at them. What they did is what was known as break bulk shipping. So what you would do is you'd bring in your containers, and they weren't containers. They were boxes. And what they would do is they would put them in nets, and they would take them into the hold, and they would stuff them in the hold so that unloading and loading of ships was time-consuming. It was often fraught with uh, problems over security. Hmm. For example, in some ports like New York, there was a rule that said that anything that dropped, the longshoremen could have. <laughs> so, guess what would happen? TVs, with color TVs would come across from Japan, and they would accidentally drop, but not drop. Fell off the back of the truck. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. That's, <laughs> so, what containerization did is it simplified loading and unloading. It also ship simplified tracking and control and security. Because what happened is once you loaded a container, you locked it. That was your responsibility. It then went on to a ship. And the ship, instead of having to have being a very manual process where the, the containers were basically stuffed into every nook and cranny, you could start to pile containers up. So suddenly you had specially designed ships, container ships. And if you've ever seen pictures of them, what you'll see is ships which seem to have decks, rows upon rows of containers. So what they've been able to do is they've been able to increase the volume carried 
They've been able to simplify the loading and unloading, and they've also been able to simplify the security because you lock it, and then when it gets to the other end, you unlock it. No one can go in and pilfer it. So, Stephen, it sounds like a perfect storm of all these forces coming together to create this really efficient system. Am I off base with that? No. In fact, I think you're right. We have benefited for the last 20 plus years from this perfect system because you've gotten technology, you've gotten improved manufacturing capabilities, you've got the ability for me to take a design and to transfer it from one end of the country over to another. In fact, one company I was working with, they told about how they were able to literally work on problems 24 hours. What happened is they had a problem from a customer. It began in North America, and then it got transmitted to China. They worked on it, then they transmitted to their division, to the group in India. Then they transmitted it to their group in South Africa and in Paris. Then they transmitted it to England. Then they transmitted it to the United States. So when we think about 24 hours, we're thinking of 24 hours, you and I. They were thinking about 24 hours where every stage was so integrated that you could bring everyone together so that the problem never stopped. And then they were able to deliver a superior solution to the customer literally within days, not months. To top of that, you've got the ability for us lean. Uh, lean has really had a big impact on supply chains, not simply because of its reduction of inventory, but because it forced participants to look at their processes and to identify non-value adding steps. We became, uh, one more thing that became really critical is we increasingly became aware of the voice of the customer. I'll give you a prime example of that. There's a company I'm aware of called Calix and Corolla. Supposing I came up to you and I said, let me give you some background. They grow, they deliver flowers. That is, a florist would buy flowers from Calix and Corolla. Most of the time, a flower has a 19-day life. It takes 10 days in the traditional supply chain to get the flower from the grower to the florist, which means nine days left. Well, Calix and Corolla came up to florist and said, we got a great deal for you. What's that? We're going to charge you 25% more. <laughs> and everyone went, uh, is there a bridge in Milwaukee you want to sell me to? <laughs> and they said, but you, don't, you haven't heard part B, the rest of the story. What's the rest of the story? Well, we're going to get the flowers to you in three days. So it goes from the grower to the florist in three days. Now, for the florist, guess what that means? He doesn't, he or she doesn't have to buy as many. Suddenly, and we're starting to see people re-examining the supply chain. We're starting to see in major innovations which enable us to not only build, buy globally, but sell globally. Mm -hmm. For example, here's a, a simple innovation that's had a big impact on our ability to be a global supply chain power. Okay, where, have you ever left the North America? No, I wish. Okay, I've been to Australia, to South Africa, etc. The power plugs vary. Yeah. In the past, what they used to have to do with power plugs is you'd have to build the unit specifically to the country. Until a guy by the name of Corey Billington 
uh, who used to be at HP, said, what happens if we design for postponement? What's that? Instead of me building the product to a country, I build the product 95% complete except for the tail. And when you place the order and it's going to China, I put the power cord that goes from the brick to the outlet specific to China. That's configuration. Suddenly, I've got better forecasting. Mm -hmm. So you have all of these developments coming together. And suddenly, what it's doing is it's enabling supply chains to be global, both in production and in supply and in sort and in marketing when supply chains get disrupted so when they were disrupted at the beginning of the pandemic when they're disrupted now um how much responsibility do you know presidential administrations trump and biden how much responsibility do they bear but also you know regardless of what responsibility they have how can they respond to help well that that's a good question and the reason it's a good question is because what you're really first of all You've got the two tensions taking place in the United States, government versus non-governmental intervention. There are times in my mind that governmental intervention is necessary, and this is one of the times. Uh, I think the issue that it's now is, first of all, uh, work together. Governments have to work together to coordinate policies. And when you're sitting there accusing each other of problems of tactics. To a certain extent, some people might argue that's like negotiating with the devil, but this is a case where we have to do something because we need to get products into people, and we also need to get supply so that we don't overinvest in the wrong capacity. That's important. The other thing that's important, too, is to me, governments have got to look not at short term, but they've got, they've got to be someone looking to the long term. And I'll be very honest as a supply chain person, I am bothered. Why? Our infrastructure. I'll give you an example. Um, how your next car, your next car, are you th- let's say your next car is going to be another two to three years. Are you thinking about getting an electric car? I would love to if I could afford it. Okay. Supposing the price of the electric car was at the same price as the price of your current car. Would you be interested? Of course. The only thing I would be concerned about is, you know, uh, charging, how much that's going to cost compared to gas. But yes, absolutely. Now you've gotten into the infrastructure. Right. Okay. Uh, We have a power grid system that was built in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. It's old. It sounded like it was a problem. Yeah. (laughs) It's old. And so suddenly what's going to happen is you're going to overload it with demand for for electricity. Mm -hmm. The other problem that you have is uh, charging, you know, charging networks. So, we have roads, we have bridges that are under bad condition. We have an infrastructure which is old. And to me, the government's the government role should be to look into the future, identify actions which can help us 
maybe not immediately, but could provide a foundation for the future and to say the following, uh, let's negotiate, let's coordinate, let's build so that not only are we dealing with today, but we're going to prevent these problems from occurring again in the future. I see companies looking at that, but I have not seen as much from the government. Uh, I've seen the, it's at February 12th, 2021, White House proclamation on supply chains and the May 12th, 2021 proclamation cyber. Uh, the problem is that's just a start. Mm-hmm. And we've got these other issues to worry about. Um, I'll give you something to think about. You want to see what could happen to the United States? Take a look at Australia. Australia has a highly educated workforce, but most of their industry has gone. That's one of the challenges. Uh, I, I spent two years in Australia, and I thought it was a marvelous place. But you could just see the writing on the wall. So, uh, changing gears a little bit here, um, you live in an era where consumers are increasingly uh, concerned about transparency when it comes to things like uh, ethical practices, food safety, child labor, uh, environmental sustainability. So, um, what kind of demands does that put on the supply chain? How does that change the supply chain? How does the supply chain deal with transparency? Your thoughts? Okay, number one, uh, what you're seeing right now started way back. We started, you know, we started to see the initiate the beginning of this way back in the 1990s. What's happening is consumers today have become much more socially aware. And we started to see this where I had an interview with Miller Coors in Chicago in 2015. And they were telling us about the fact that uh, they had introduced a uh, designated driver program in large cities where if you were the designated driver, two things happen. Number one, your soft drinks got paid for. And the second thing is, if you were a designated driver in certain large cities, you got a ticket. And then once a year, Miller Coors would draw for that city and someone would get a vehicle. And I, you know, I thought that was amazing. And I asked them why. And they simply said, the, cost, the consumer's forcing it us, on us. So they understood it. There's two dimensions. The visibility is becoming the new byword. Okay. Let me, before we go any further, let me make sure you understand the difference between two terms which are used interchangeably, but they're not interchangeable. The first term is visibility. The second is transparency. Visibility is how many tiers in the supply chain can you see? Transparency is can you see into what's actually being done inside the firm? Both of those issues have now become critical to the supply chain and to the consumer. We have gotten visibility to a certain extent being handled by technology. Third-party data, secondary data, I should say, IoT, Internet of Things, is doing a lot. But to get real visibility, you need two things. You need not only to know what your supply chain looks like, 
but you need to know who your your key suppliers are, and you have to have relationships with them. And what the consumer is now forcing many companies to recognize is if you want to get your supplier to work with you, you just can't simply tell your supplier to do it. You have to be seen as being a good customer. And what that's forcing companies to understand is technology is important. Technology makes things work. Technology by itself is not enough. It's the spice. It's the enhancer. If you don't have the the bones, the good relationships, then you can see, but being able to see a disaster and being able to prevent it are not the same thing. Give you a good example. Of just of all the car companies, who do you think was best able to avoid the chip shortage that plagued the automotive industry until recently? I don't know. I've heard that Taiwan produces a lot of chips, so I would assume somebody with some connection to them. <laughs> it was Toyota. Toyota did it because when they were affected by the tsunami of 2011, they found out that they had limited visibility. Most companies, it's really the supply chain management is a field of paradoxes. And that's one reason I love it. <laughs> that and it's a you know, paradox. I, you know, sometimes two ducks, I mean, it's foul. But anyway, uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. It's I Canadian. love dad jokes. I love dad jokes. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 you have to understand I'm Canadian. I, to explain to people, I'm Canadian American. And I explain, if you understand the difference between the two, the two countries, just look at the difference between their first leaders. The American first leader, George Washington, was a saint. The Canadian, the Canadian first leader, Sir John A. Macdonald, was a drunk. <laughs> <laughs> and we were proud of it. We waged an election on the campaign on the slogan, better Sir John A. drunk than a George Brown sober. And <laughs> Sir John A. won. <laughs> anyway, just think of it. So anyway, um, the paradox is most companies understand that they're dependent on the supply chain. But the model most companies use is one up, one down. I look to my immediate customer and I look to my immediate supplier and I expect my supplier to manage their supply chain for me. And we've known since 2011 that's a dumb model. What's happened was that the supply chain, if we're going to have true visibility, that model has to be changed. And for many companies, that's a problem because you have to do more than invest in technology. You have to invest in relationships. You have to be seen as being a good customer. And getting back, so getting back to the chip shortage story, Toyota was able to identify that it would have a chip problem at a fourth tier, which is where TSCM Toyota Silicon Manufacturing Corporation was located, which is the world's largest chip foundry. It doesn't design, it manufactures chips. And when they talked with the people at TSMC about what was happening, they were told that if they canceled their orders, they would have difficulty getting back in line. So they kept them. The company that pioneered Lean my gosh, was carrying inventory. Okay, none of the other companies did that. Why was Toyota so successful? Well, there's another piece of information. 
every year, Plant Moran does a survey of first-tier suppliers to see in the automotive industry, which of the big automotive companies is the best customer. And guess which one is consistently ranked at the top? Toyota. Yeah, Toyota. So, what Toyota has really done is it's understood that supply chain is not simply technology. Supply chain is relationships. Mm -hmm. And that's become an issue. So, going back, that's so as we get the question you asked at the beginning is it important? Yes. But to do it properly, we have to understand that you not only have to deal with the technical aspects of supply chain, but with the behavioral aspects. So this is a relationship. If you think I'm a bad customer, are you willing to share information with me? Right, right. And if I'm not considered, if I don't, if I don't treat you well, if I cancel orders, if I don't do anything appropriate, when it comes time for information, I'm going to be the last to know. And we're starting to see that's important. Mm -hmm. So, the answer is visibility is becoming aware, and but it's not enough because one of the things companies are worried about is not simply visibility, but transparency. Mm -hmm. They want to make sure that everyone is saying the same thing. And we have too many examples. I can, I can give you some of companies where what top management says and what's done on the shop floor or what's done by buyers is totally at odds with each other. Uh, well, we got to hear some of these examples. You know, oh, we got to hear those. Okay. I can, I can tell you that. Okay. Uh, just to give you an idea, one example is the department that I work with the Department of Defense. Uh, I'm part of the National Defense Industry Association. And uh, one of the things we found is the Department of Defense wants to encourage small suppliers with timely deliveries. And the reason being, you want to support your warfighter, which is very important. But when you get down to the lowest level, many of the people who are placing orders are only measured in terms of cost. So when a supplier does something and jumps through hoops or helps to make sure that the warfighter is really supported by appropriate products made available at the right time through extraordinary efforts, what happens in many cases is the buyer looks at the person and says, I don't care about that. Can you give it to me at the lowest cost? I'll, prime, I'll give you a prime example. A friend of mine has is the CEO of an ESOP, uh, employee-owned stock company in Tennessee. In 2016, the Department of Defense said to all of its suppliers, uh, you want to deal with us? You have to be NIST 800 certified. Uh, you have to follow the NIST 800 framework. Okay, that's about 120, let's say 127 different issues I have to be complying on. <laughs> and by the way, if you don't do it by December 31st, 2017, you're gone. So here he is, and he's committed. I always thought he should be committed the other way, but I'm not going to make that payment. <laughs> anyway, but he's committed, and uh, he goes in, and he's got a bid from the government. And who's competing against him? Two suppliers who have decided that they're not going to stick around and they're going to leave December 31st, 2017. They're able to offer a significantly lower price 
because they're not putting in all the investments to be compliant, to help the government protect the property, the intellectual, the the information that's so critical to our defense. Guess who gets the contract? Right. Now, think about that. The the head of the government purchasing agent is saying, this is critical. The buyer says, I don't care, higher, lower cost. So, transparency forces us to recognize that not only do you have to look across supply chains, you have to look into supply chains. Mm -hmm. And that becomes a challenge. Companies are doing it. It's going to become gradual and it's going to be forced. Uh, Prime example, um, some years ago, I, I went to Kalamazoo, which is a great place to get beer. And I went to a place by Bell's called Bell's Eccentric Cafe. And they epitomized what the modern consumer is looking for. Every item on its menu had where it came from, where the cheese came from, mm-hmm. where the sausage came from, where the potatoes came from. That's what, that's what people want nowadays. And uh, the problem is, it's more than technology. All right. Well, Dr. Stephen Melnick, Professor of Supply Chain Management at Michigan State University, thank you so much for stopping by the program today. It's been my pleasure. I've enjoyed this. And that's it for this episode. Don't forget to visit us at connorsforum.org. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Happy trails to you Until we meet again Happy trails to you Keep smiling until then Who cares about the clouds when we're together Just sing a song and bring the sunny weather Happy trails to you Till we meet again trails to you until we meet again happy trails to you keep smiling until then who cares about the clouds when we're together just sing the song and bring the sunny weather happy trails to you Goodbye, good luck, and may the good Lord take a liking to you.